Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. and welcome to the Family Biz Show. My name is Michael Columbus with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York, and you are in for a treat today. Today we are joined by James Hughes Jr., Jay Hughes, um, and Jay, for those of you who don't know it, um, is probably the reason that I'm doing a lot of this. Uh, when I read his book, Family Wealth, Keeping It in the Family, it struck a chord with me and I had to reach out. He was kind enough many, many, many years ago to uh, guide me through a journey and uh, um, that introduced me to John A. Warnick and the Purposeful Planning Institute. And uh, so, Jay, thank you for everything that you've done for myself and the community that, you know, is part of the Purposeful Planning Institute and uh, those serving families of wealth and, you know, families of family businesses. Welcome. Well, Michael, thank you. I am delighted this morning to be joining you and uh, whomever out there uh, decides to have a listen. And um, hopefully in the conversation, uh, some things will occur that will help human beings flourish. As you and I have said, that's why we exist. That's what we do. Why we do what we do. And so this morning will be another opportunity, or this afternoon, wherever your time zone is, uh, hopefully to add to uh, that work. Perfect. So one of the things that we like to do when we kick off is, you know, this this world of family wealth, the world of family business. Um, you know, when you started your journey there was you know, very few, if any, university studies, or there wasn't tracks of information. There was lots of, you know, uh, how would you say, um, trial and error maybe. Um, and so you know, what I, I'd like people to talk about just a, a three minute version of the journey of what, what brought you to working in this world. Um. Michael, I'm 78 years old, so I'm getting uh, close to antediluvian before the flood uh, in age and stage of life. Um, however, I am one of the few people, very few people, who were very privileged to be trained uh, in this work uh, by, in my case, lawyers uh, and also very senior bankers and others back in the late 1960s. Now, why does that matter? Well, it matters because those men and some women, but mostly men at that time, had come into the professions, banking, law, accounting, the other things that serve families, had come into the profession in the late 30s or when they returned from the Second World War. In turn, 
they had been trained by men that were men at that time who had come into the profession around 1900. Just think of the life of a professional and how many years it would be generationally. The interesting thing is that the men who came into the profession around 1900 were the first people in America who had to deal with great fortunes created during the robber baron period in the post-Civil War. So they were the pioneers in this field. And they trained the men and women who trained me at the end of their careers. So I'm one of the last living people, I think, who comes from the tradition of having looked at the questions that families face with resources beyond their uh, normal spending needs uh, that really go back through the history of our country. And there were a few, I don't wanna extend this too much, Yes, there were a few fortunes before the Civil War, but not many. The Astors would be one of the very rare ones that uh, preceded the war. But essentially, uh, that process of study and assistance to families who have basically the same issues uh, they would today. And then the other thing I would say, to keep this short, is that in that process of working with those men who trained me and women, I very quickly began to see that there were vintages of trusts, just like wine. And that each of those vintages, whether it was 1917, 1931, 35, people say, is that old? Yeah, I was working as a young lawyer with trusts created with those vintages. And essentially, as the law evolved, uh, the fiscal laws evolved, uh, each of those periods had an event that affected the wealth of those families. And so trust came to life that are vintages, if you will. And that still occurs today. But again, having seen how families responded to those events, external events, and also these men's experience of how they responded to the internal events in their family is what they taught me. You know, we've we've talked several times through the years, and I've never heard you talk about the vintages of trust. And when you really start to look at it, I have seen exactly what you're talking about. And, and it might even be kind of like the wines where upstate New York version of trust versus the Colorado or the California or the Delaware trusts are <laughs> right. different as well, just like the grapes in those areas. That's a that, really, that's a neat analogy. And that is exactly... So. <laughs> so today we're going to take a deep dive into the three circle model of family business systems um, for, you know, I'm not, I, I would like you to talk about that, but this is, you know, widely regarded as the, you know, the model that is still utilized today. And it was um, a professor at Harvard and his graduate student that came up with this, Renato Tagari and John Davis going back into the, the late 70s. Um, what I thought we would do is, you know, if you wouldn't mind, let's just start with the big picture and, and then dive a little deeper as we go, as we go through it. What, what is the three circle model? Well, I'm hoping that our listeners, uh, Michael, have a pad and paper in front of them because we're going to do some diagramming. Um, and I'm going to go a little slowly 
<laughs> Perfect. In the hope that uh, each of the persons listening will find a pad and paper. And let me just suggest to each of you that it would be good if you had maybe four sheets of paper and a pencil. So uh, I can take you through it this way. So in diagramming the three circle model as it's come to be, this is a Venn diagram, V-E-N-N, -N, which is a diagram in which you have three circles that intersect. So if you put on, the, on your paper on the upper left-hand side, a circle and you write in it family, and on the upper right hand of your paper intersecting that circle, you make another circle that says uh, owners slash board, B-O-A-R-D. And then below the two, kind of in the middle of the two intersecting another circle, and you put in that circle the word management. So you should have three circles that intersect, create a kind of three place intersection in the center, the left one, upper one saying family, the right upper one saying board or owners, owners slash board, and the bottom central one saying management. So what Mr. Davis, John Davis and Taguri imagined was that family enterprises and I'd like Michael to extend for a moment the word business to the word enterprise and suggest this morning to the extent that they're interchangeable, that we use the words business or enterprise interchangeably in order to include listeners whose businesses are today enterprises managing the fruits of businesses that have turned into financial assets so that we're encompassing the whole range of resources, whether they're business resources or what I will call enterprise resources that include families whose enterprises are now uh, in financial form rather than in business form. Agreed, that makes sense. Does, does that seem to you to paint a picture uh, of the three circle model? Perfectly. All right. Now, let me then ask our wonderful listeners on the other pages that I've given them to take the next step on this, to realize that when John Davis and Mr. Taguri imagined this all those years ago, they imagined it in a certain way that is static. So if you're looking at this at your paper, you're looking at a two-dimensional picture of it. What I'd now like all of our listeners to do is to turn on, as my wonderful wife, the storyteller says, to turn on their imagination stations. And to realize that each of these circles in three dimension is a sphere that the family circle is not a two-dimensional flat, it is a round sphere full of energy. And the owner business, uh, owner manager, uh, excuse me, the owner board circle is also a sphere of energy. And that the management circle is a sphere of energy. Because if we think about it, inside family, there are multiple relationships of human beings. 
inside the owner board, there are multiple relationships of what I call dynamic stakeholder conserving stakeholders. And there are board members of many different relationships. And in management, they're all different kinds of managers. So this is not a flat horizontal or vertical picture. It's actually a picture of a dynamic system. And surrounding that, those three spheres is a larger sphere that's invisible, which is the field of family evolution. So in your imagination stations, please imagine that surrounding the three dynamic spheres, there is a larger sphere, somewhat mysterious, hard to see, that is the whole sphere of the family's field of experience. So that's a lot of imagination, but that's actually what it looks like. And Michael, one of the difficulties in our field has been that the teaching of the three circle model, so to, as we refer to it, in my opinion, has been far too static. That is studying products and processes as if this was flat and never changed. While in fact, it's a dynamic system in which the energy of each sphere is constantly flowing. So I'm going to stop there and see if my imaginal way of describing it has given you at least and our listeners a way of seeing that this is a dynamic thing, not a static picture. It makes perfectly good sense because when you when you start to think about it, if you if you don't think it of it as dynamic, you're excluding things like what happened for me uh, two days ago, 22 days ago, yeah, three days ago, my daughter just got engaged. And, and so when you're bringing in a new member to the family, um, especially when you're thinking in terms of a family of affinity, and maybe even, maybe even more so if you're not currently a family of affinity, that is going to have a dramatic impact on all of those other spheres as you're going through things. If you bring in a new manager who has a different skill set, if you bring in a board member that just has a different way of thinking, it changes all of those spheres. So it is 100% dynamic. And, and now you go back to the family evolution piece that surrounds it. And I think about um, my family again, and I use it as the example where this summer in July, we had Columbus Family Vacation 22. And for the first time ever, we, we have done some family meetings that were static meetings, meaning here's where we stand with what the estate flow looks like, but it wasn't a discussion of what could be done with it. And we didn't talk about the people that were part of the system, but this year the family allowed me a little bit of leeway and we brought in a facilitator just to do something simple. We brought in and we, we did a disc profile on every family member and then had a discussion about how that works and how that, you know, you know, integrates. And that is, was part of the evolution of our family because we all looked at each other and thought about how we communicate in our personalities in a different light. Is that 
make sense? Well, not only does it make sense, but it is the dynamic awareness that the different relationships inside each of those spheres of energy, each one is dynamic. So it isn't, it isn't a family of this many people who did this. It is actually a system of very complex relationships between each person who fits the name family of affinity member, how those relationships work inside that sphere of energy, and then how that whole sphere of energy affects the other two. It's constantly, constantly changing. Agreed. I love that's it's a really, you know, it's we, like I said, we, we've talked many, many times and I, the, the one thing, and I shared this with somebody else recently, and I'll share this with you. The biggest mistake, in my opinion, that I have made through the years is not asking for more time with people like yourself and John A. through the years, because you have always willingly given it. And, you know, as long as you don't push that envelope, but in, in hindsight, how much faster that development happens when you're talking to somebody who just has that many more years of experience than, than you do. And that we've talked about the mentor mentee relationship many, many times. So um, what I'd like to do is I just want to bring up and talk about before we dive more into the family enterprise and how that works and the three circle model, um, we just use a term, you know, the family of affinity I want to define that for people so that they understand family of affinity versus a family that's not of affinity and you know what that looks like. Would you mind sharing on that? Michael, I'd be delighted to. Uh, let me offer this. Any family that thinks of itself as blood is almost certainly not going to flourish. Now, why do I say that? Well, because most families think of themselves somehow as blood. So why do I say they will not flourish? Well, in the biblical sense, if you build your house on sand, it's going to fall down. If you build it on rock, it's going to stand up. Or you know, like the three little pigs. Better to have a brick house than uh, one made of straw or one made of wood. Um, what am I laughing about? Well, no family ever began with blood. It's a fallacy. Every family ever, Adam and Eve or whatever mystical families we want, always begin with two people who have an affinity and they share no blood. As one of my great demographer friends said, Michael, many years ago, the only thing that blood knowing blood is good for is if you're in the emergency room and you need a transfusion. He said, that's very helpful. But he said, otherwise it's completely fallacious. So if a family builds its journey on blood, it's building its house on sand. If it builds its house on rock, it's because it recognizes that from its inception, it's an affinity group. It's two people who have an affinity for each other. Affinity is the word in Webster's of there's I think 14 or 15 different uh, definitions. It's the word in Webster for positive connection. 
whether it's in biology or physics or art or the humanities. And here's the really interesting thing. The very first definition of affinity in Webster's is relations of human beings other than by consanguinity, which is a very large word meaning blood. So what Webster says is that the first meaning of affinity is relations of human beings other than by blood. And when I discovered that many, many years ago, I thought, gosh, that's how families start. They start with positive connection to each other. And, and that connection itself is usually that of a partnership, not a joint venture. What do I mean by that? Well, as my dad taught me many, many years ago, partnerships are about giving to each other. So your daughter's con congratulations to them. Your daughter and the young man or young lady today have made a decision to be each other's partners, which means they're each gonna give a lot to each other. Joint ventures and families, by the way, that are constituted as joint ventures are about getting something from each other and they all fail. They fail the affinity principle. So that's a lot of words, but that's exactly what I've seen. Those families that start understanding we are an affinity community, we're a partner community about giving to each other, helping each other flourish, do very well. Thank you. No, I, that, that's great. And it's, it's funny as I've gone through, it is a really, in the day and age that we're in today, I think that's a hard concept sometimes for people, or it's a very easy concept. I don't think there's a lot of middle ground, you know, and for many families, it's, uh, you know, the idea of everything that we created in this family stays together. But, you know, I see a lot of that. And that does make it very difficult when bringing in that new knowledge from the external side, as some people would call the outlaws or the, in, you know, the in-laws. Um, and the, the well, flip... Michael, let me add something here. Uh, I didn't mean to speak over you. Oh, you're okay. The interesting thing about married ins, which I think is a lovely term because it's pretty much descriptive, uh, is that they are the only people who choose us. That's right. Everybody you, else wasn't a choice. If a family wants to get rid of hubris of blood, if it's still stuck there, and it wants to get to affinity, it can get there fast by asking that person, why would you choose a crazy bunch like us? So the married ins have a particular deep awareness because they're objective to some extent. Sure. They, they're making a conscious choice to join. And that principle is the affinity principle because they'll say something like, well, I love you. I like you. You're, you're good. I enjoy being part here. There's something going on here that's positively attracting to me, not just my relationship to the one person, but all of you. Right. And, and, and it's funny because, and I, I just want to reiterate one more time for those that just joined us, we were talking about the difference between a family of affinity and a family of blood. And what Jay said, you know, at the beginning was every family is a family of affinity at one point. So if you're three generations 
down the road with the family business, somewhere along the lines, your grandparents chose to marry each other and start that family. And they did it because they had an affinity for one another. And so we, there was no blood at that point. It was just the blood from that point forward, their descendants forward. That's really interesting, Jay. And avoiding fallacy can be very useful. <laughs> so, so we've talked about, we've laid this framework out for the the three sphere model. We're going to take, yes. we're going to change that thinking now from it's not three circles to the three spheres. And it's that, you know, the family evolution that surrounds those three spheres, whether it be family, the ownership and the board or the management of the company, management within the company. What are the potential consequences for families that ignore, you know, those three circles and aren't paying attention to all sides of, you know, all pieces of the sphere. Well, Michael, let me start first with philosophy and then move to practice. I always think why matters and then to get to how. Um, all families start in the way that we're discussing it, enterprising families, with one human being doing something very, very unusual. In fact, it should be something that's impossible. That person has a dream and that dream becomes so manifest for that person that they actually take the energy of the dream, dreams are energy, they're not matter, and they manifest that dream into matter. That should not be possible for a human being to do. So the first thing we have to understand is that all families that have enterprises of these sorts are not normative. They're not better, they're just not normative. That's the first thing. The second thing is that if that particular individual and another individual have an affinity and create this thing we call family by having future generations, then the question that that family has to consider is why in three generations universally in the world do the bonds of family fall apart? Why? Well, uh, most of the time it is because the family doesn't have an overriding interest in the growing the affinity. It gets caught in the financial capital. It doesn't grow its human intellectual, social and spiritual capitals. So in three generations around the world, all different proverbs, the family bonds come apart. Now the families that don't have that, the families that go beyond the third generation with the bonds intact, where they don't know it, but this is critical. They are deciding when the bonds break. So no family ever can avoid coming apart eventually. That's physics in our universe, second law of thermodynamics entropy. But every family has free will as to when. Isn't that interesting? Fair, every fair. family has free will as to when. Now, to your question about the three sphere model. If we understand, as we do, that each of these spheres is a sphere of energy, a sphere of energy that emerges from that first action of taking energy and making it matter, and the first action of family the affinity energy between two people. The question is, how do we sustain and grow the energy? 
how do we create fusion instead of fission or inertia? Ah, well, let's come back to our three spheres now. Let's be practical. Well, the first thing is that when we look at the three spheres, they look like they're the same size. They aren't. So if I'm that first generation person who took energy and made it matter, my dream and manifested it, when I look at the three circle, the three spheres, what do I see? I never see family at all. Right. It's opaque. I see ownership, but that's me. So I don't see that circle very well. And when I look at it, what I see is a huge sphere around management succession. So when I look at it, I don't see three equal spheres at all. Now, if I'm a great grandchild of a family, great grandchild, fourth generation, of a family that is intact, what do I see? Management's opaque. I can't see it at all. I have no connection to it. The owner and board see sphere is pretty important. I know something about stakeholder ownership, either as a tr trust beneficiary or directly. And I know something about the board because they come and see me. So that circle is pretty big, but the family circle is enormous because now there might be, I don't know, 50 or 60 different sets of complex relationships in the family sphere. So over the four generations, the dynamism of the spheres keeps shape shifting, depending upon who looks at it. It's almost like, uh, you know, I don't want to get in deep into physics, but almost like the law of special relationships that Einstein created, where the train's going by and we all see it differently. <laughs> Depends or, on where you're sitting. Yeah, or we see through it darkly and something darkly, and maybe later we see more clearly. But the point is that the spheres are constantly shape-shifting as the energy inside of them evolves to match the needs of the overall system that surrounds it. So this imaginal, this is the actual way to imagine and understand the three-sphere model, that it is constantly dynamically changing and its relative importance is changing depending upon who's looking at it. So now let me be very direct. If I'm sitting with a dreamer, as I call them, who dreamt a dream that became so large for that person that he or she actually brought it to matter, manifested it. If I talk to them about the family circle sphere, or the board and owner sphere, I will get dead eyes. Can't see it. No matter how many times on the pieces of paper all of our listeners and watchers have, and no many times I draw it, all they can see is management succession and a glimpse of owner succession. If I talk to a second generation family member, what they can see is management as relatively important, 
they begin to see ownership and board as manifesting. And they begin to understand that the, that family sphere is emerging. And if I talk to a third generation member of an intact family, they will begin to see the family sphere as most important, the board and owner sphere as dependent and management sphere is shrinking. Now it isn't that each isn't important. It is simply that these are dynamic spheres that evolve with the evolution of the family and that larger sphere of system energy that surrounds it. Now I'm apologizing if that's too much in to try to, but that's actually, Michael, the way it is. And let me say candidly, the terrible damage has been done with this three circle model, not three sphere model, because it's seen as static. And it isn't seen through the eyes of the person looking at it, depending upon which generation of the intact family of affinity he or she is in when they look at it. Sure. It, again, it goes back to like you talked about the train, perspective is everything. And that was about the, the best analogy and, and you know description of looking at it from G1 to G2 to G3 to G4. You really need to see it through those different lenses. It's also different if you're a married in. It's just, yes. Absolutely. It, it's different if you're a member of a family business, but not a family member. Um, and so it, it's, that's a very, very good way of looking at it. The consequences to ignoring those things you know, is goes back to, you know, whether you're growing and flourishing or, or not. And it's, I, I, would, I would imagine, and tell me if I'm wrong with the challenge becomes if I'm only seeing things through my perspective, I may be missing the perspective of others to a detriment. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it, really dealing with something as powerful as this model actually is, the first thing one has to do is get rid of one's own subjectivity. Now that's impossible. I'm not creating something impossible, but the subjective look at this, how do I see it? is fine as long as it is followed by how does everyone else in the system see it? But if it stops with how I see it, terrible damage is going to occur because it fails the great test of Oliver Wendell Holmes, who said, if you recall, I wouldn't give a fig for the simple made complex but I give, would give everything I own for the complex made simple. Well, if I'm looking at it subjectively only from my own view, I've got the simple looking at something infinitely complex and I'm in terrible trouble. If I can look at it and say, what is the complexity of this? And how do I now become objective in looking at it? it now becomes incredibly powerful as a positive tool. 
Now, let me add one more thing quickly here. So, because I think it's also a part of the system that is opaque. I'm gonna to quickly touch this. In America and in other common law countries, Britain, Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, it's very common, Michael, that by the third generation of a family that's, who has significant resources, an enterprising family, it's very common in common law countries that by the third generation of the family, the grandchildren, 90% of the resources are in trust. There's a wave effect. So that founding dreamer has nothing in trust. The children, the second generation, as we refer to it, the rising generation, usually has about 50% in trust because along the way they got some shares, that owner circle begins to appear, and then the estate lawyers and everybody got helping and then the trust came. So often it's about 50-50 for them and they create trust too. So by the grandchildren generation, about 90% with a wave of trust is in trust. Now, I'm gonna ask our listeners and you to tell me where in the picture that we made does the word trust appear? You just made it way more complicated. Yeah, where's the word trust? Did anybody see that in the pictures that they drew? No. And yet there's another family member sneaking in. The trusts are family members. They're not other. They're not something right. other. They're, they're family members. Yeah. They're right in the middle of this system. And in fact, when you look at the owner board circle, and you don't write the word trustees in there, and you don't put sort of dotted lines up in the family circle to trust, the picture is completely incomplete. And in fairness to Mr. Davis and Mr. Taguri, they were trying to describe a business problem, principally, by the way, of evolution of management, because they're business professors. It's only when you get into the complexity of the future of the family's enterprise ownership that you begin to realize that you have family members who aren't identified in the picture. But boy, are they important. Sure, they, they, they each have their own unique tax ID number. And thus, yes. according, to, according to the US you know, IRS, oh. They are a part of the family. That's interesting. Never, I have again, always enlightening when we when we talk. I learn something every time. Well, I'm only showing my scars today, my old facial scars at 78 years old, of what I didn't know when I first started studying this model. But I have the scars to prove what I didn't see as physically a part of it. So. I added that because I thought that that completes, in my view, what the picture really looks like. Yeah, which goes back to that, you know, the, the sphere that you put around all of this, it's that family evolution and understanding that regardless of whether you like it or not, it is changing daily. And it's, you know, it's the people that have the foresight to say, hey, you know what, what got me here 
probably won't get me there. And I, I need to bring some people that may have been down this journey before to think through these things. And so, you know, one of my, uh, an avid listener, not, not happen, doesn't happen to be on today, but their family had, you know, a, an enormous amount of success. Mm-hmm. And it was, um, you know, two brothers, you know, just did a great job in building this business. And they're now in their late 70s or 80s. But one of the things over the last 10 years that they said is they did reach out and they created, you know, a, an advisory board. They created a family constitution. They created a family board, a family, you know, the, the family advisory council, family council. Yes. And they did that in the first, you know, in the first generation while the second generation was learning. One of the reasons, you know, in conversations that we've had was they realized that the amount of, and it was only driven because of the amount of wealth Mm-hmm. and the fear of what could happen but the amount of foresight like you said typically that first generation person can't see that so i just take my hat off and tip it to them to say you know good on you for for having that foresight to say i i knew how to build a business i didn't yes. i wasn't i never went to you know to uh i never became a, a therapist or a, a soci, sociologist and a uh psychologist to understand how do I keep my family together right that's uh that's interesting well Michael I think it makes perfect sense um how this happens because think for a moment all of us how non-normative how truly unusual it is that a human being takes a dream and actually manifests it that is a taking a pure energy and turning it into matter. That's actually what happens. And naturally, to do that action in a lifetime, particularly in a very large result, one becomes captured by the magnificence of that journey. And rightly so. And therefore, many other things that one might have thought about simply even if they are imagined, don't get into one's consciousness because one's consciousness is very full. That's why I've often said, Michael, that it's the second generation, rising, the first rising generation, the second generation whose principal question is family, not business. Its principal question is what, how does a family emerge And of course, that question sits fundamentally in the question of can it make joint decisions? So when you mentioned constitutions, you mentioned councils, all of these bodies or documents are important. They're only useful, however, if the rising generation can make them work, which is not a question of the document, or the system, it's a question of practice. Sure. And what often doesn't come is the manual of practice along with the document and the structure. So the second rising, that first rising generation, the second generation, not only has to figure out 
how to make family joint decisions. Family has to be two or more people. You have a single person household, but you can't have a family that Webster says that isn't two or more people, which means joint decisions. So the second generation has the very complex problem of both having to learn how to practice these different uh, systems that they inherit, uh, boards, uh, whatever it may be, documents. But they also have the even deeper question, can they as individual family members make decisions together? Now, not to go too far afield, but the tragedy that they need to understand, all of our listeners, is the tragedy that Roy Williams and Vic Pricer's great book, Preparing Heirs, say that 80% of families don't have a joint decision-making system or can't make it work. 70% when the second generation becomes the decision-makers. Bad odds. And what are those odds re reflecting? Those odds are reflecting that the practice of joint decision-making wasn't in the mind of the first generation. The second generation has to find advisors who can advise them like you, Michael. By the way, here's your problem. So you have this wonderful three circle model. Oh, it's spheres. Oh, it's not circles. No, it's spheres. Oh, and by the way, you have to imagine that they're dynamic. They're dynamic. It looks flat to me. No, it's a round sphere in space. It's not a flat land. Oh, God. Really? And then there's this whole big imaginary sphere around it of family and evolution. What? And by the way, the only way the spheres grow is if you make good joint decisions. But I don't like my siblings. I know you don't, but you have a choice. <laughs> and by the uh way, your children, the grandchildren, their future depends upon whether you can learn to make this system dynamic and make good joint decisions in all three of the spheres and the larger sphere. Oftentimes, you know, as you're saying that, I've, I think about some of the fifth generation or sixth generation businesses, family businesses that I know, and the reason that, that don't have a governance system within the family and that's they call themselves a family business and they are fifth generation but through the years the business entity only flowed through one family line and it's wholly owned by that one family line so even though it's still in generation you know i mean it, it's a, a fifth generation business in the, in the essence that you're talking about if you're trying to have three or four different family lines control a business, manage a business, own a business together without, in the absence of learning how to govern together, learning how to make decisions together, they will fall apart. Well, it has to be that way because they're not accreting energy. Energy is running away. By the way, and, and that it, governance, as you just said so beautifully, Michael, if everyone could stop looking at boxes and boards and entities and just realize that all government is, is joint decisions by those who can vote. That's all it is. Right. And 
it's just as simple as how the kids, the second rising generation, who they decided to go to send to dad and mom when there's a message. And my father taught me that the person selected is never the person that dad would select to run the business. No, because that person's not objective. The kids figure out who's the one among us who's actually a kind of fiduciary mindset, who cares about all of us. That's the person they send. Well, it's figuring out that in joint decision-making. Does that make sense? Governance is joint decision-making. Yeah, and it's in the absence of governance, again, I think it's important to make sure that people hear this, is that in the absence of governance, somebody gets a, bl a black eye, somebody gets a bloody nose, and that's what's the piece that causes the harm is that they're not part, they're not joint in that decision-making process. I didn't have a, you know, a part in saying that we we're gonna move from dairy farming to cattle farming. And hmm. without, without being a part of that, I'm taking my ball and I'm leaving and I'm not gonna be part of this. Yeah, well, that's right. So either there are people with what I call fiduciary mindset, small f, duty of care, loyalty, and to the whole, who emerge and who facilitate the development of those joint learning systems in each generation. And they're learning, they're not just decision. There's learning before the decision. There's learning before the decision. It's growing the intellectual and human capital of that family. So the social capital is joint decision-making system grows too. That's core. Now, one further thing on back to our subject on the enterprise, family enterprise, and the three circles, and looking for a moment at the evolution of the owner board circle or sphere, I do want to say something important, I hope, for those listeners, because that sphere tends to get forgotten. Management looks very present and family looks very present. The ownership board circle sphere gets missed. Let me say that one of the great problems in our field, as Michael will attest, is there are no programs I know of to learn how to be a great owner. This becomes even more mysterious if you're this thing called a beneficiary nobody understands what that means and you don't own anything even though everybody around you says you're an owner but in fact you discover you're not an owner so now you have a lot of cognitive dissonance cognitive dissonance stands in the way of good decision making because that's confusion it's very very important very early on in each family enterprise whether it's a business or a financial family in my opinion that at the earliest moments, the rising generation, that second generation, begins to learn how to be, and I'm going to use a string of words, dynamic, conserver, eventually turning it over in equal or better condition than they received it, stewarding, that means growing, stakeholder not shareholder, stakeholder owner, dynamic, conserver, stewarding, 
stakeholder owner. Five words. Great families, Michael, that I've studied all knew without the terms that that's the kind of owner they needed. And they also knew that people whose disc uh, process would suggest they would be great managers often are terrible owners. They're really good at tactics and unfortunately, rarely good at strategy. We're all given different gifts in this lifetime. Great families very early on intuit and develop, the elders do this work, intuit and develop the skills of the rising generation members, those who will be good braves and go out and hunt and what have you, and those who might have fiduciary mindsets and grow one day to be elders because they're the strategists. So they seek to discover inside the fabric of their family, the strengths of its, the members by, learn, by beginning very early this quest to learn to be a dynamic conserver, stewarding stakeholder owner. Love it. And they're different strengths that make up that knowing, but they don't miss the fact of growing great owners. So let me just paint a picture for you. And if, you know, a lot of the families that we serve in upstate New York kind of look like they're in second or third generation or the transition between second and third, they're typically, you know, let's put it at, uh, they're running somewhere between 20 and $100 million of revenue. The -hmm. focus for the family is mostly on the business. Okay. Yes. So, so now, it, based on what we've just talked about, there's, there's, there's three. There, I mean, there's. We know that there's more than that. It's more, much more dynamic than this. But I'm going to simplify it a little bit. From the family side, you're working through the family council, the family governance. You're, you're putting yes. those rules in place. On the business side you're putting together your leadership team, your management team. And that is a mix of family and non-family members that are running the business. Right. And, and then on the, on the, on the um, ownership side, you're talking about the, who is the board of directors, mm-hmm. right? So now, now we've, so we have that picture for people. I'm running a family business where I have the vast majority of the members happen to all be family the vast majority of members are owners and the vast majority of members are management. Right. How do you, and how do you help them to separate those pieces and create a rhythm in which that they can, they can pull those pieces apart to make that work for them? Well, that's a whole nother episode, isn't it? It is, and I'm going to try to um, offer a, 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 a reasonable, reasoned answer. We live in a time of positive psychology. We live in a time where industrial organizations have developed multiple means of discovering our talents, not our weaknesses, discovering our talents. In the years, Michael, that I was active, I'm now mostly, as you know, retired. 
I was one of the earliest people in this field to ask families to do three things once they decided they wanted to go on a long journey. That, by the way, that's a conscious decision. Are we interested in a short-term process or are we interested in long-term? Are we interested in seven generation thinking as the Iroquois taught us up in your region of New York or not? If we're not, it's fine. But then lots of what I'm gonna say is meaningless. In fact, lots of what we discussed this morning is meaningless. If on the other hand, a family does want to adopt seven generation thinking, it does want to decide when the proverb comes true, the short sleeve proverb, hopefully many, many generations into the future. Then one of the early things that it does before it starts making big decisions, it stops. And it says, what do we need to learn about each other that modern positive psychology and industrial psychology can enable us to know about each other as real resources to this process that we don't know? So very often, Michael, with those families, I would ask them to do a learning styles assessment. How do we learn? Because if we're going to process thousands of facts and information pieces, over the next hundred years, the first thing we have to know about each other is how we learn. Because the one thing we know is once we have five or six people making joint decisions, at least two, if not three different learning styles will be their special way of learning. Second, work styles. Which piece of work do we most want to do? I won't go into it in detail, but there are four different quadrants, as Jung pointed out, of actually how we like to do work. Well, if we're going to be doing a lot of decisions that then generate work to do, it matters hugely to know which one of those four kinds of work we most like to do. And then Enneagram, what's our personality? That's hugely valuable. And then, some pretty good learning about making difficult decisions, having difficult conversations. Well, let me just tell you that if a family pauses, that's the key word, it pauses at the point that it says, we want to do seven generation thinking. We want to be a family of affinity. We want to seek to enhance the journeys of happiness of each member toward all the boats rising. When they make that conscious, deep, spiritual capital decision, then you don't start, you pause. And in the pause, you go and find these resources about who you are, what you can know about each other. So that when you then start picking up the joint decisions that are the journey of that seven generation thinking, you know who to rely on for what kind of decision. You actually find trustees, believe it or not, who are congruent with your journey and who do all the those tests too. <laughs> who are you? If I'm gonna be in an intimate family journey with you as my trustee inside that family circle, I need to know who you are, not your biography. Right. Well. The point is pauses 
lead to great growth. Skipping the pause means greater disassociation and cognitive dissonance. Pauses are critical, but it's first awareness. Oh, this is not a flat three circles. It's spheres and they're dynamic and they're moving all the time. And they've got lots of different people inside them who keep changing. Wow. Oh, that's something big to think about. And then this large sphere of the whole family journey that surrounds it pauses, important pauses. One of the great things about COVID is that I've seen are the families that are doing really well and are gonna do generationally well have used COVID as a time of understanding that they're out of the river they were in. They're sitting on the bank and they didn't try to dive back in that river. They said, no, 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 no. Let's sit here and learn because that river is not the same river when we get back in it. It changed and we're not the same either. Pause. Pauses are so important for yeah. gathering information, gathering knowledge, gathering even a little wisdom. Time so, to think. Time to think. Allow, allow allowing it. Uh, Jay, I am just so appreciate your time and sharing with everybody here. Um, I have two pages of notes and I'm trying, you know, every time I looked away as we were going through, it was only because I was writing notes and, <laughs> uh, and capturing things. I'm glad this is recorded. Um, in respect for your time, um, it is after one o'clock. Yes. I, I appreciate you joining us and um, say thank you again. Um, well, Michael, it was an incredible privilege. I have enjoyed our association so much over the years and to each of the people that have been kind enough to join me today and join michael and i thank you i it's your it's your participation today uh that's helped me enormously uh, feel from your energy how i could best answer michael's questions so thank you until and as we the young people today say until soon until soon bye-bye <laughs> Thank you everyone for joining us again. My name is Michael Columbus. This has been the Family Biz Show and I'm uh, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. Everyone have a great week and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, Michael. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with the Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. 
Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.